0: You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional
1: clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. The following podcast is a synopsis of BMO Financial Group's official COVID-19 coronavirus weekly conference call for the week of May 26th with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. The conference call also featured three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group, George Farmer, Senior Biotech Analyst for BMO Capital Markets, Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory from BMO Financial Group, and myself, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. In this week's podcast, we'll hear from both Dr. John White and George Farmer with respect to how we as a society are tracking the virus. Given that we're talking about medical information, this is just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or healthcare professional. Dr. John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the chief medical officer at WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Please also keep in mind that Dr. White is a frontline soldier with respect to the war on COVID and coronavirus as he continues to see patients in both Washington, D.C. and Maryland. Here are Dr. John White's comments.
2: Worldwide, there's been over 5.5 million cases resulting in nearly 347,000 deaths. What's important to keep in mind is that the top five countries are the United States, Brazil, Russia, Spain, the UK, and Italy in terms of the number of cases. And the reason why I point that out is if we had this conversation last week. Brazil would not be in the top five. And that's one of the biggest changes that we're seeing from a worldwide epidemiologic perspective. Cases in Brazil have exploded. And part of the challenge is how the government is responding to it. In Canada, there are 86,000 cases resulting in over 6,500 deaths. Canada is number 13 if you rank all the countries in terms of the number of cases. In the United States, We have over 1.6 million cases and are rapidly approaching, which everyone expects we will, have over 100,000 deaths this week. What we've seen in North America over the past week is a varying degree of reopening. So all 50 states in the United States have some degree of reopening, reducing the lockdown, as well as the 10 provinces in Canada. And this past weekend, particularly in the United States, celebrating Memorial Day, we saw these large crowds, often without facial covering or physical distancing, at parks and beaches, but it wasn't unique to the United States. The mayor of Toronto expressed frustration at some crowded parks as well, as the governors in New York and California have expressed concern for some beaches um, in terms of the crowding as well. But let's you know, kind of look at it realistically. It's been nice weather. People wanted to get out. We're definitely having isolation fatigue or quarantine fatigue. And the reason why I point this out as being relevant is it it pertains to the issue of what if we need to have a lockdown in the future if there's a second wave? I don't think there's an appetite um, for the same type of lockdown that we've been experiencing over the last few weeks. And I also said if there's a second wave. We don't know if there will be one. And sometimes watching the media makes it seem like it's a fate accompli. But I really want to point that out. We don't know if there'll be a second wave and what that will look like. We need to be prepared, but we shouldn't assume it's automatic. And as we continue to reopen, often in stages, from a public health perspective, we need to look at several matrices. We need to look at the total number of cases, particularly if there's a rate of increase or decrease. We need to the number of tests, and that has been challenging uh, the testing issue. But I'm particularly interested in the percent of positive tests, and we really want that less than 10%. And the reason why that is, we don't want to just be testing those people who are most sick or have the most serious cases. From an epidemiologic standpoint, we want to be testing a fair number of people, probably more than 2% of the population, which is what um, the administration has recommended. We want to look at the number of hospitalizations. That's an important key point because, remember, most cases of coronavirus, people are going to be at home, they're going to feel lousy, but they're going to end up being okay without receiving any medical intervention. And we want to look at the number of deaths. And then just to keep in mind, if you're looking at the data, you always want to keep in mind that we're always about 10 to 14 days behind, given the incubation period of coronavirus. So we're going to see a week, 10 days from now, um, what the impact was of this past weekend. Also keep in mind, heat and humidity is not a respiratory virus's friend. So I do think we're going to continue to see a decrease in the number of cases here in North America. But a key element is we have to do testing and we have to do tracing. And the prime minister in Canada did announce last week looking at a potential contact tracing app. Um, But I point out that the response overall to tech's role in creating an app has been lukewarm especially in the United States. And you need a critical mask for it to work. And most of the efforts really have been focusing on training and hiring new contact tracers. So it's still an old school perspective of using people to do contact tracing. The big news last week from CDC revolved around surfaces. And the CDC issued a guidance last week pointing out that the virus does not spread easily on surfaces. And that's really an important point, because for those folks who are worried about wiping down their grocery bags, disinfecting their mail packages, this new guidance, I hope, brings some relief, because the virus is a respiratory virus spreading from person to person, typically through droplets. When an infected person sneezes, they cough, they talk to someone at close range, even if the person's not showing symptoms. That's why facial coverings play an important role. But just touching a doorknob, touching paper, isn't likely going to give you coronavirus. And that's very important to keep in mind as we reopen. The other important insight that we've gained more clarity on is that the risk of infection indoors is more than 10 times what it is in open-air environments. And that's going to cause us to figure out how to be safe and how to feel safe as we continue to reopen and keep open. So if you go back to the issue of surfaces, we've learned from some data in South Korea that in an office setting, the virus wasn't being spread through touch points such as elevator buttons, but by people talking to each other for hours, typically more than 30 minutes in close quarters in an unventilated space. That's, again, why the masks are important and the facial coverings, because physical distancing plays an important role, and that's going to help us reshape our office configurations and think about our office density. So conference rooms, and people have talked about this, might need to have fewer people. The meetings may not last as long. I think that's a win-win for everyone if we're talking about shorter conferences and, and fewer people, but... If you think about science, and let's think about, you know, how policy should be guided by science, automatic doors and voice-acted elevators probably aren't what's needed and maybe isn't where we should be spending a lot of resources. When we think about testing and temperature checks, they have been imperfect from a scientific perspective because fever isn't the only symptom, and people might be taking medicines such as Motrin they don't even realize it, ibuprofen, Tylenol, which lowers temperature, And they may not think to mention that. And then when and how often do you test? We can't be testing people multiple times a month. We just don't have the resources. But I recognize that testing and temperature checks might make people feel better. And we used to talk about these certificates of immunity. But given some imprecision of antibody testing, especially when there's low prevalence, it's creating a challenge of accuracy. So we're not talking as much about the certificates of immunity. And then as for restaurants where there's been a big discussion, remember I said that outside is less spread of the virus, so we'll be seeing more al fresco. but the reality is due to temperature and physical environment, it's not going to be practical for every type of restaurant. Um, and curbside pickup isn't going to restore their financial viability. In, in terms of public entertainment, sports and concerts, a lot of people are wondering about this. I'm going to be honest. I think it's going to be tricky for the summer when we think it's about population density and breathing on each other and and, um, singing, which we know can be a way of transmission. So it's not sure how to do social distancing in these settings. So I think it's still gonna be several more weeks till we sort that out. In terms of healthcare, the good news is we're seeing return of elective surgery. It's actually primarily orthopedic surgery, which makes sense. People have a lot of pain. They want that hip replacement. They want that knee replacement. But we've also seen an increase uh, back going back to normal in terms of hernia repair, and even bariatric surgery. But we're going to need to keep in mind that patient outcomes might be compromised slightly as surgeons have to adapt and they have to prioritize that patient backlog. So we're trying to get people to come in. And how are we going to have that surge of people coming back in and address all the procedures that need to be done? We've talked a lot about telehealth over the past few weeks. As you'd expect, that's having decreased growth while office visits are returning. And the biggest decreases have been in for telehealth in terms of cardiology and neurology. People are coming back into the office. And that's something we've been encouraging because we've been concerned about the decreased presentation of heart attacks and strokes to the emergency room. But on telehealth, the issue is going to be whether these regulatory restrictions, which will pause during the public health emergency, will return the the issues of licensure, the issues of platforms. No one expects them to return, but we'll see about reimbursement in the future. Whether there continues to be parity with a visit coming in, because that's going to impact utilization. We are seeing increase in terms of the number of prescriptions being written, which is good, including written prescriptions. So that means patients are going back into the doctors' offices, and we're finally starting to see lab tests resume particularly in non-COVID patients. So I see a lot of positives um, over the past week. We're seeing a return of procedures and physician visits. I think we're gonna see more and more offices open on Saturdays. I think we're gonna see procedures done on Saturdays which typically were not done to make up that backlog. I think we're gonna continue to see regulatory flexibility. And I know others are gonna talk about where we are in vaccine development in terms of where we are in treatments and diagnostic. And it's gonna be iterative. And then I do think we're having more and more discussion focusing on science, which is important. Let's really nail down what we know about transmission of respiratory viruses and make science-based policy decisions as best as we can. I'm happy to answer questions. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian.
1: Uh, thanks, Dr. White. Let's keep the healthcare and biotech and drug theme going here. I'm going to hand the ball off now to George Farmer who's going to discuss his current views. George? Uh,
3: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, And thanks for that, Dr. White. Uh, Always uh, extremely interesting. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, more focused on a company called Moderna, which has uh, certainly been in the spotlight of late. We launched coverage on this company back on April 30th um, ahead of some uh, clinical data that was recently reported. Um, we came out with a with a very bullish outperform rating uh, on the stock because we we really do believe in this unique vaccine development technology that the company has been uh, working on over the past uh, decade or so. Um, this technology has proven to be quite effective uh, for developing vaccines uh, against. Um, uh, against cytomegalovirus, which is a, a, a kind of a, a rampant viral infection, which really doesn't cause symptoms, uh, generally in people, but can be a complication during pregnancy. Um, and has recently also shown some potential activity in Zika virus. Um, however, you know, certainly the spotlight has been focusing on SARS-CoV-2, um, based on using the exact same technology. And this is really kind of the prior work on the other vaccines has gotten us really um, pretty, pretty excited about the potential of the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, you know, last Monday we saw a qualitative description of phase one results coming out of the company. This is a phase one uh, trial actually that was conducted by the NIAID um, that enrolled 45 healthy volunteers, um, aged between 18 and 55 years old. Um, all 45 of those patients developed antibodies, antibodies that bound to um, the, the particular uh, uh, protein of interest that uh, that the vaccine is developed against. And also more importantly, we think, is that eight out of eight patients that were analyzed developed neutralizing antibodies. Um, and uh, these levels of neutralizing antibodies were at least equivalent or above what was reported uh, from convalescent uh, 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 sera that was also tested in parallel. This sent the stock up a lot, um, and then the company went out and raised about 1.3 billion dollars in cash. That caused quite a stir um, because they really didn't present any specifics on this uh, very small data set. Um, we agree that the optics looked bad on this. however, the company insisted they needed to build up cash reserves in order to meet this manufacturing capacity demand that that they anticipate once they bring their uh, once the vaccine ultimately uh, wins potential FDA approval. Uh, they do have a grant with BARDA for $483 million, but that's apparently not going to be enough. Um, at the end of the day, we definitely need to see more of this data, um, and the company has reassured us that a publication is going to be coming out in several weeks from NIAID looking at data from all 45 patients. Um, so uh, in the meantime, I think we just have to sit still and uh wait for this data i think this is an example of where uh um, wall street and science uh don't always mix um, wall street has their uh has their agenda and science has its agenda but i think the, i do agree that the responsible thing to do would be to get a publication uh in, <clears throat> submitted to a journal undergo proper peer review and then we'll ultimately see how that data looks in the meantime, I want to focus on some new evidence that came out in the journal Science by the laboratory of uh, Dan Baruch, which I think is really quite interesting. Uh, he inoculated a bunch of um, monkeys with uh, a DNA vaccine uh, against the spike protein as well as different variations of the spike protein. Uh, he saw that uh, the mo- monkeys developed titers of neutralizing antibodies, just as we uh, that just as what was described in the human study that came out of NIAID. Um, and that these neutralizing antibody titers were similar to both convalescent monkeys and uh, patient sera, uh, but then took it one step further and challenged the monkeys to viral infection after they were inoculated, and it looked like that there was um, uh, uh, a s- significant degree of protection of lower respiratory tract uh, viral infection in the monkeys, which is really what matters most. Uh, the laboratory also went on to characterize the antibodies and showed that they indeed were, were doing what they're supposed to do and targeting the virus for cell killing by a number of different mechanisms. Um, th- this is really supportive. We think of Moderna's approach as well as lots of other approaches that are using DNA and RNA vaccines, um, which makes us very hopeful that ultimately a vaccine is, is going to, uh, to, become, to be FDA approved and will provide the, the protection that uh, is so desperately needed. Um, there are a lot of vaccines. Moderna is not the only one. Um, a lot of them have announced, uh, a lot of companies announced, a, a number of them are going into clinical trials. Um, this is all kind of on a record-breaking uh, pace. There's talk there about getting this vaccine to to, uh, the, pop, to the, the general population sometime next year. Uh, these are very ambitious goals. Um, but no one's backing down, at least the people who are developing the vaccines, they really do believe that this can happen. Uh, Moderna has even gone so far as saying that phase two trial data could support uh, use uh, availability of the vaccine in healthcare workers ahead of time, ahead of formal FDA approval. Uh, who knows if they'll end, uh, uh, sign up and actually take the vaccine without uh, longer term safety data, but uh, that certainly
1: remains to be seen. Globally, there are over 5.5 million cases and 347,000 deaths with respect to COVID-19 coronavirus. Brazil has been in a surge in the past week alongside the U.S., Spain, United Kingdom, and Italy, and is now a top five country in terms of infections. In the U.S., there are 1.6 million cases with over 100,000 deaths. There has been varying degrees of reopenings in all 50 states. Isolation and quarantine fatigue combined with the warm weather resulted in large crowds over the Memorial Day weekend. We expect to see the impact from the weekend in about 10 to 14 days given the incubation period of the virus. Last week, CDC released new guidance with regards to surfaces. It notes the virus does not spread easily on surfaces but rather through in-person interaction that disseminate droplets in the air. Also, indoor risk of infection is 10 times higher than open air environments. These discoverings will have an impact on reopening of office spaces and personal workspaces. People are returning to hospitals for regular checkups and visits, and telehealth has shown a decrease accordingly. There have been an increase in the number of prescriptions while lab testing and surgical procedures have resumed. Managing the surge in visits and backlog of surgeries and vaccinations will be an important issue in the medical field going forward. Moderna, as you heard from Dr. John White and analyst George Farmer, is increasingly gaining strength on its vaccine that was released last week in terms of its phase one results. All 45 tested subjects developed effective antibodies and eight out of eight developed neutralizing antibodies that were at least equivalent or above what was reported in convalescent plasma. More data needs to be released, but heading in the right direction with respect to phase two and phase three trials for the vaccine. Several alternative vaccines in Moderna are also in the works, one of which involves inoculating monkeys with a DNA vaccine. Results were positive, whereby the monkeys developed neutralizing in antibodies for those monkeys were injected with respect to fighting the virus. It actually showed very strong responses. This is supportive actually to Moderna's approach. Finally, Dr. John White always likes to end in a positive note and he maintains an optimistic view based on effective public health policies, the decrease in rate of increases in deaths and rapid development underway for a vaccine. Thank you so much for joining us. Please stay safe and be well.
0: Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com
3: slash public disclosure.